I'll begin reading in chapter 26 at verse 1. You shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of evil beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. Your enemies shall fall by the sword before you. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you, and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And after all this, if you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your strength like or your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain. For your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. Then, if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues, according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, and your, your highways shall be desolate. And if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. When you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I have cut off your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in one oven, and they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. And after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury. Uh, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I will bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. 
I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time, it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a shaken leaf shall cause them to flee. They shall flee as though fleeing from a sword, and they shall fall when no one pursues. They shall stumble over one another, as it were before a sword, when no one pursues. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands. Also in their father's iniquities, which are with them, they shall waste away. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I, uh, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humble and they accept their guilt, then I will rem remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham I will remember. I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. Amen. Amen. As I said last week, we looked at the first 13 verses, but considered some other things pertaining to covenant theology, just by way of uh, reminder with reference to this section on the promises of God for covenant faithfulness in terms of good things in the land, blessing, and then God's curse upon them if they go into the land and they break covenant. This is not unique to the Bible. This was something symptomatic of ancient Near Eastern uh, treaties and, and covenants and that sort of thing. Typically after a covenant was given, there would be that sort of statement, a summary statement sort of reviewing the parameters and the details involved and outlining the blessings and curses for either A, obedience, or B, disobedience. We have this here in Leviticus 26. There's a parallel in Deuteronomy chapter 28 as well. So last time I wanted to look at the nature of the covenant with Israel before we looked at the blessings of the covenant with Israel. So the nature of the covenant with Israel, remember just by way of a working definition, Sam Renahan says a covenant is a divinely sanctioned commitment defining the relationship between God and another party. And there are elements involved in a covenant. You've got parties to the covenant, stipulations or laws or commandments or sort of parameters that must be kept or obeyed. And then there's the promise of blessing and then the threat of curse. Again, very symptomatic or very typical rather of covenants in the ancient Near Eastern world. 
Now, in terms of the covenants that we often think about or deal with in terms of covenant theology, you have the theological covenants, covenant of redemption, covenant of works, covenant of grace. And then you have the historical covenants that you find with Noah and then Abraham and then the nation of Israel, also called the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinai Covenant. And then you have the Davidic Covenant and the New Covenant. So those are the farther steps of Second London Confession, chapter 7, paragraph 3, when it talks about the promise given first in the, in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3.15, and then that promise is moved along by farther steps or the historical covenants until that final realization of it comes in the new covenant of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, I argued last week that the old covenant is a covenant of works. In fact, you can turn to the book of Exodus chapter 24 where that's quite obvious, at least the children of Israel saw it in that particular way. In Exodus chapter 24, we have the ratification of the covenant, and specifically at verse 3, we read, So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgment uh, judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said we will do. And then dropping down to verse 7, then he, he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. But then we go back to the book of Leviticus, we see the same emphasis. In Leviticus chapter 18, in verse 5, the apostle Paul quotes this in Galatians 3 as he sets forth contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant, or that principle of works and that principle of faith. And in Leviticus 18 at verse 5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 26, again, a passage quoted by the Apostle Paul to show that it is futile to try to approach God based on a covenant of works. In Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, 27, 26, it says, cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law by observing them. And again, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, also in the book of Romans. So going back to Leviticus chapter 26, we see that motif clearly outlined. If you look specifically at verse 1, you have sort of foundational principles in verses 1 to 3. It highlights the object of worship and fidelity in terms of worship. So notice 26.1, you shall not make idols for yourselves, neither a carved image nor a sacred pillar shall you rear up for yourselves, nor shall you set up an engraved stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. So again, by way of recapitulation, summarizing in essence the gravity of the covenant, you're not supposed to have other gods. No other gods before me, no other gods besides me. And then in verse 2, you shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So the way that we maintain fidelity to Yahweh is to maintain fidelity with reference to Sabbath and sanctuary. And then notice how we can tell or how we see that we're dealing with a works covenant. Notice in verse 3, if you walk in my commandments, then verse 4. So if you obey the law of God as commanded by God, then you will reap the promises associated with that covenant. Then when we turn to verse 14, notice the contrast. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, then basically these terrors and horrors will be unleashed upon you. 
So basically, they were told or taught that they needed to obey God. They understood that. They swear that fidelity in the book of Exodus. They have that principle undergirded throughout their time in the, in the, uh, under the tutelage of God. And so this is a works covenant. It's not a covenant of grace or an administration of the covenant of grace. It is rather a works covenant. And there are reasons for that. On the one hand, it is to keep and restrain the children of Israel so that they don't go hog wild and jeopardize the seed. As well, it's typical. What we find in Moses and the children of Israel is typical of the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as well, it prepares the people for the coming of the Messiah. It caused them, the faithful remnant, to continue to look to the promise of God in terms of his sending the son of his love in order to save his people from their sins. So there's reasons and a rationale for it as a covenant of works. Again, Paul deals with that in Galatians chapter 3 very specifically. So covenant is a very important uh, 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 construct in the Bible. As Renahan says, it's the central architecture. It's a structuring device in Scripture. And then when we come to this chapter, we saw the blessings for obedience, specifically in verses 3 to 13. And that brings us tonight to the curses of the covenant with Israel in verses 14 to 46. So first you have general warnings in verses 14 to 17, then you have specific curses stipulated in verses 18 to 39, and then you have the promise of restoration conditioned upon their humble repentance in verses 40 to 46. So let's look first at the general warnings in verses 14 to 17. Notice the condition again, but if you do not obey me, now, if you're thinking about this in relation to the new covenant, we ought to rejoice that the covenant of grace, what we call the covenant of grace, was in fact a covenant of works for the Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfilled it all. He kept the, the demands of God. So everything that is written here, he did obey. Everything that is written in the law of God, he did do. And he is our representative, he is our high priest, he is the surety of a better covenant because of his obedience when we by God's grace believe we're not only washed in his precious blood but we're clothed in his, in his righteousness. And it's a wonderful thing that we have in the new covenant. Again, not that the salvation of Christ was, was void in the old covenant. No, the people of God were saved but it wasn't by virtue of the old covenant it was by virtue of the new covenant. They were looking forward to the Messiah that was to come. And so the promises of God, as Paul tells us, are yea and amen in him. As a result of our covenant head, our covenant keeper, basically for us, the covenant of grace is the covenant of works kept for us. So the Lord Jesus was born under the law, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. So when you read these Old Covenant passages, yes, there's a lot to learn. There's a lot to learn in terms of God's revelation of his law, of his mind, of his will, of his, of his, of his intention for the created order. But as well, when we read this, we ought to read it with this New Covenant perspective and thank God Most High for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, our perfect covenant keeper, the one in whom all the blessings of God flow to us by virtue of his doing and his dying and his rising again. So if you do not obey me, that's the condition. 
And then notice the demand. It's not just partial obedience. We oftentimes cite Second London Confession 19.1 in reference to obeying the law. It doesn't say, give it your best shot. You know, try to get seven out of those Ten Commandments. God's gracious. He grades on a curve. Just, you know, do the best that you can. Look at what the demand of the covenant is. If you do not obey me and do not observe all these statutes or all these commandments, it's not the case that you get to pick and choose. It's not the case that, that you can forsake exact, entire, and perpetual obedience. That's the obligation placed by God upon the people of Israel. And then notice the issue involved. If you despise my statutes or if your soul abhors my judgments so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant. So again, it couldn't be clearer that this is a covenant of works. It's something that is violable. It is something that is breakable. In fact, look at Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is an old covenant announcement by an old covenant prophet of a new covenant blessing or new covenant reality. <clears throat> and he says specifically that there's a contrast between these covenants. Notice in 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I, will, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. So what does that imply or what does that teach concerning the new covenant? When you're in the new covenant, it's not breakable. When you're in the new covenant, you're eternally secure. When you're in the new covenant, there is provision by God that you will persevere by grace and reach your, in, your intended uh, destination. It is an unbreakable covenant, not contingent upon our obedience, but always predicated on the obedience of the Son of God, the true Israel of God, the, 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 the champion of our redemption. So there is this stark contrast between the old and the new in terms of breakability or violability with reference to the covenant. And then back to our passage, note the general warning, uh, the general warning in verses 16 to 17. There would be the appointment of terror. Verse 16, I, will also, I, will, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you. So God says, in light of this broken covenant, you're going to reap the curses. You're going to reap the judgment. You're going to reap the penalties involved for having sworn fidelity and then going out and breaking it. And then specifically, we have pestilence. I will even appoint, uh, I will even appoint, appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever, which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. So the exact opposite or contrast to what you find in the promise section with reference to covenant faithfulness. Notice specifically with reference to the, the, to the uh, uh, lack of food when it says, you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. If you go back specifically to verse 5, your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. So if one of the blessings in terms of covenant faithfulness was the provision of food, one of the curses for covenant unfaithfulness is deprivation of food. 
And then that statement in verse 17, again, it's exactly contrary to what you find in the passage concerning blessing. Verse 17, I will set my face against you and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you and you shall flee when no one pursues you. Look at verse 9. For I will look on you favorably. That's for faithfulness. But for unfaithfulness, I will set my face against you. And you shall be defeated by your enemies. Verse 17. Remember, that's one of the blessings in terms of faithfulness in the covenant is that God would vanquish their enemies. God would defeat their enemies. They would be the pursuers of those who came to do harm to them. And then that statement, it's picked up again in the rest of the, the chapter when it says, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. It's Proverbs 28, verse 1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. You're walking with God when you're faithful to the Lord. You don't have to fear. But when you are contrary to God and God is contrary to you, you have everything to fear. That's what Paul says. If God is for us, what can man do? Well, the converse is true. If God is against us, what can man do? So there's going to be this fleeing. There's going to be this fearfulness. He indicates more of that in verses 36 to 39. But that's sort of a general statement concerning the, uh, uh, the warnings of God. Then the specific curses. Notice in verses 18 and following. First, the judgment of drought and no harvest. Again, verses 18 to 20. And you'll notice he uses this convention seven times more for your sins. I will punish you seven times more for your sins. That shows up here and then again in verses 21, 24, and 28. I think Wenham has a good observation. Seven seems to be a round number for repeated punishments. He gives a few verses to indicate that. It is an appropriate and evocative number in view of the importance of the seventh in Israelite religion. And it serves as a reminder that these punishments are for breach of the heart of this religion, the covenant. The book of Revelation portrays a series of sevenfold judgments overtaking the world in the last days in Revelation 5, 6, 5 to 16. I would suggest, brethren, that if you really want to understand Revelation, you ought to get Leviticus 26 down. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, you ought to get Deuteronomy 28 down. And it's not concerning our future. It's concerning the Israelites to whom the curses of the covenant were written and upon whom God's curses came in AD 70. That's the point of the book of Revelation. But I, uh, I digress. So notice, though, under this judgment of drought and no harvest, note that God identifies a particular sin. Verse 19, I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. That simply means there'll be no moisture. There'll be no rain. There'll be no clouds. There'll be no blessing from on high to saturate the earth and to cause it to yield and to be fruitful. Heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Your strength shall be spent in vain. For your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the trees of the land yield their fruit. It's very simple. You go into the land, you do what you're supposed to, you'll get provision. You go into the land and you do what you're not supposed to, and you'll get deprivation. That's the curse of the covenant. Then notice the presence of wild animals, verses 21 to 22. Again, contrast with verse 6. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none will make you afraid. I will rid the land of wild beasts, and the sword will not go through your land. 
It's got wild in the margin in the New King James. It's got evil in verse 6. I don't usually look at beasts as evil. They're wild, but they're not evil. I don't think they eat people because they've got a malicious spirit. I just think they're wild. So notice in verses 21 and 22, if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children, destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. That word desolate comes up a lot in this particular chapter. And again, I think there's some, some New Testament connections that ought to be made when it comes to desolation and the land of Israel. When you get to the Olivet Discourse specifically, Jesus says, see your house is left to you desolate. He's picking up an old covenant theme relative to the Israelites and showing how the judgment of God has come upon them to the uttermost. Now, when it sa says your highway shall be desolate, imagine desolate Highway 1. Imagine desolate Yale Road. What would we think? We would think something bad happened. Or we might think just the opposite. Oh, I can make it across this little town in five minutes instead of 30 minutes. I, I, I actually probably would think that. But, but the desolation bespeaks God's judgment. It speaks of having had some negative sanction imposed. In this context, it's a curse. You want your highways not to be desolate. You want there to be trade. You want there to be flourishing. You want there to be commerce. You want there to be a, a robust economy. You want there to be you know, crop sales and all that sort of thing. The fact that the highways are desolate is a, is a warning, is, a, is a, a symptom, rather, of God's judgment upon them. And then notice, thirdly, the judgment of war in verses 23 to 26. Again, this is directly contrasted with verses 6 to 9, when God would vanquish their enemies, when they would triumph, when a handful of Israelite soldiers would be able to come against a great number, a multitude of enemies, and, and thwart them. So look, though, at verse 23. Notice, and if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me. So in the midst of this, God is showing his patience, his long-suffering, his, his graciousness. He sends these things, why? To get their attention. He sends these things, why? To captivate their minds. He sends these things, typically through the prophetic announcement, to call them to repentance and faith. If you don't repent, if you don't make good on your covenant obligations, you're going to reap the consequences. So he says, and if by these things you are not reformed by me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins, and I will bring a sword against you that will execute the vengeance of the covenant. Again, a, a, a phrase that comes up in Jesus' Olivet Discourse when he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and he speaks specifically of the days of vengeance in Luke's Gospel in chapter 21. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near. You, you really need to understand Leviticus to understand the Olivet Discourse. I suspect that many people who take the Olivet Discourse and, and throw it into our future are not operating from a proper covenantal context in terms of God's word to the Israelite nation. Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 has one primary theme. 
the destruction of the temple in AD 70 by the Roman armies. That was an indi indicator that Christ was at the right hand of God Most High, bringing judgment and vengeance upon his enemies, namely unbelieving Israel, who cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. So this vengeance of the covenant, again, picked up by our Lord concerning the days of vengeance relative to the destruction of Jerusalem. So he says, when you are gathered together within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I have cut off your supply of bread, 10 women shall bake your bread in one oven. What does that mean? Well, typically in a decent economy, every family would have their own oven. You wouldn't have to have 10 women sharing one oven. If you did, that means there's not a lot of bread. And that's why it says, and they shall bring back your bread by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. It's not because you're a, a gluttonous pig. It's because there isn't enough. This is a time of deprivation. You violated and broke the covenant. As a result, the judgment of God comes upon you. Again, this is contrary to what you read in Deuteronomy 8.10. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Now, up to this point, all these things had not transpired. This is all part of the covenant document. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what you get if, you, if you, you're faithful. Here's what you get if you're unfaithful. But if you've read the Old Testament, you, you know very well that they certainly underwent these things. You, you know how the story ends. They didn't fulfill their obligations. And then notice the judgment of war, but as well exile in verses 27 to 39. Exile means the removal from your country and placement in another country. Exile in Israelite religion was a huge negative sanction. I mean, central in Israel's religion was the land. Remember, God swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he was going to give them a piece of land. And so they were tied to that land. They had inheritance in that land. It's where they lived. That's where they had families. That's where they farmed. That's where they worked. That's where they, they conducted themselves. That's where they worshiped God. Land was central. So when God through Moses starts to invoke this concept of exile, he means business if you break covenant. So notice, with reference to the judgment of war and exile, the purpose of God's judgments in verses 27 and 28. And after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me. So interpret that. Now, don't read this and go, wow, this is vicious, horrible, wretched stuff. No, God's patience and long-suffering. He's going to send these things to get the attention of his, of his sinning people. He's going to send prophets to tell them what they're doing is wrong. In fact, when you read the prophetic literature, that's in large part what the prophets are doing. They're God's prosecuting attorneys. What are they prosecuting? Covenant breach. They're calling the people to repentance. They're calling the people back to the, to the Lord God Most High. So, and after all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. That's a pretty... Sick concept, isn't it? I don't know how else better to say it. This actually happened. This, this happened. 2 Kings chapter 6, Syria sieges uh, 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 Judah. And what happens in the midst of the siege? Cannibalism. What happens in the time of the Babylonian captivity? Cannibalism. 
Le, uh, Jeremiah and Lamentations 2, uh, 220 uh, uh, and 4.10. He's crying out about the cannibalism that had happened among his people. And then it happened in AD 70 as well. Josephus has you know, a few sections in the Wars of the Jews talking about cannibalism, talking about when the siege upon Jerusalem was so bad, there was no food. It was not uncommon for ladies to boil their babies and, and eat them. And again, that's a horribly vicious thought, but, but that's what the vengeance of God Most High looks like. Ezekiel 5.10, same sort of a concept. Meredith Klein makes the comment on Deuteronomy 28, which is parallel here. He says, the inhumanity of the enemy warrior pales beside the bestiality of even the tenderest Israelite mother turned cannibalistic in the horror of the siege. So God's telling them what's going to happen. Again, 2 Kings 6, Lamentations 2 and 4 tells us that it happened specifically in the Babylonian captivity. God threatens it uh, through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 5.10. And, and Joseph, Josephus details it in the Wars of the Jews with the Romans, uh, which took place in 66 to 73. The city and the, the temple fell in AD 70. There were a few years on either side of AD 70 where the Jews had risen up against the Romans. They didn't like to be subject to the Romans. They had enough. That's probably what Simon the uh, uh, Zealot was. He wasn't zealous for the Christian religion. He was zealous for the overthrow of the Roman Empire. That's why when you look at the disciple group, you've got Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. Only grace could get these two fellows in the same room and eating at the same supper. God's sovereign grace is truly glorious. I mean, you couldn't have polar opposites, a tax collector for the Roman government and then a zealot for the, for the uh, overthrow of the Roman government. So cannibalism would be an eventuality for breaking the covenant. Notice as well the reality of wholesale destruction in verses 30 to 33. I will destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, and cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. That's God's acceptance of sacrifice. Remember in the beginning of Leviticus, we have that legislation concerning sacrifice. What happens when they offer up sacrifice? It's a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. It's, a, it's an aroma that's pleasing to him. He says at this point, I don't want it. I will bring the land to desolation, verse 32, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste, then notice the interesting turn of events. I mentioned the land was central in Israelite religion. The land's going to get its Sabbath. Remember in chapter 25, we had the law of the, 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 the sabbatical year, and you had the Jubilee law, the Jubilee year. What were they supposed to do? They were to let the, the land lie in rest. They were to give it a break. So that's what verses 34 to 35 highlight. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall rest. For the time it did not rest on your Sabbaths when you dwelt in it. You didn't do what you were supposed to do. You're going to be vomited out by the land and then the land will get its well-earned rest. So you see, God tells them 
that the, the very gift that he has given them is going to be forfeit, but it ultimately is going to reap benefit from God Most High <clears throat> in their judgment. And then notice the people would undergo uh, per, uh, persistent distress in verses 36 to 39. Basically, constant fear, verse 36, constant vulnerability, verse 37, constant defeat, verse 38, and constant rotting away in verse 39. So that would be their lot. That would be what they would get for having violated the terms of the covenant that they swore fidelity to. Now the chapter ends on the high note of a promise of restoration. Notice in verses 40 to 46. It's predicated on their uh, repentance. Verse 40, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with excuse me, their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me and that they have also walked contrary to me and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. The land also shall be empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. They will accept their guilt because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. But for their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So there is this promise of restoration predicated on their humble repentance before God Most High. And then that last statement summarizes the, the basic terms of the covenant in verse 46. These are the statutes and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. Well, I want to just quickly run through the historical application of these curses. In other words, did this happen? Yes, it happened. I've already alluded to it. Uh, the first was the fall of the northern kingdom to Assyria in 2 Kings chapter 17. You can turn there. 2 Kings chapter 17. It deals with the fall of the northern kingdom to the Assyrians. 2 Kings chapter 17. This took place in about 722 B.C. And if you look at verses 7 to 17, you see the reason for God's judgment. Verse 7, For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt, from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods, and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel, and of the kings of Israel which they had made. Also the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right. For they built their, for themselves high places in all their cities, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. There they burned incense on all the high places like the nations whom the Lord had carried away before them. And they did wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols of which the Lord had said, you shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all of his prophets, every seer, saying, 
Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffened their necks like the necks of their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image and two calves, made a wooden image, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft and soothsaying, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. You see, there were reasons for the fall of the northern kingdom in 2 Kings 17. But, but notice, Assyria is the instrument. It's not, you know, they're not the main reason. Well, Assyria was just a more formidable foe. They had a better military. They were more savvy. They were better equipped. They had all the tanks and the helicopters. No, look at 18. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. And then verse 20, he had cast them from his sight. So the violation of God's covenant meant the curses associated with that. Secondly, look at 2 Kings 24. 2 Kings 24. This is the fall of the southern kingdom to the Babylonians in about 586 BC. We won't read as much here. Just look at verses 1 to 4 in terms of the judgment of God. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans. I mentioned earlier when Jesus is ascended on high and this judgment comes upon Jerusalem via the Roman armies, I attributed it to Jesus. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 26 before the Sanhedrin. Are, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ of God? It is as you said, and hereafter you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power. That doesn't mean his second physical coming. It meant he's at the right hand of God Most High sending this historical judgment upon these covenant-breaking wretches, just the way that Yahweh sent the Babylonians against these covenant-breaking wretches. So in verse 2, the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, and bands of the people of Ammon. He sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servants, the prophets. Surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also because of the innocent blood that he had shed. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. And then notice the specific devastation by the Babylonians is listed in the end of chapter 20, uh, 24 and all through chapter 25. You've got the fall of the northern kingdom, you've got the fall of the southern kingdom, and then you've got the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans in AD 70. You can turn to Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24, we refer to this as the Olivet Discourse. The Lord Jesus Christ, after condemning the religious leadership in Israel, 
gives the Olivet Discourse. And again, there was a, an, a war between the Romans and the Jews from 66 to 73. It culminates in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But here specifically, I, I, I think it's very important that you almost go back to Matthew 21 to get the whole thrust of what's happening in Matthew 24. But, but just picking up in chapter 23, just to sort of set the stage, Jesus has told them, uh, woe to the scribes and the Pharisees. He has warned people about them. And then notice in 2331, therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore indeed I send you prophets, wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Sounds just like the book of Acts, doesn't it? That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. That's an A to Z in the Hebrew canon. Abel is Genesis, Zechariah is Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles in the Hebrew canon is the last book. So you've got an A to Z or an A to, to, to Z there. So the blood uh, uh, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, now you can't miss verse 36 because Matthew's telling us when this is going to happen. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon which generation? This generation, not ours theirs, not ours, theirs. On the heels of that, the prophet Christ, according to his humanity, laments. Notice, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you. Look at that word from Leviticus 26, desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So after this strict condemnation of the religious leadership in Old, in old Covenant Israel, now notice in verse 1 of chapter 24, then Jesus went out, departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Brethren, it is special pleading to see this applied in AD 70 and then read into it a revived Roman Empire, a rebuilt temple, only for it to be redestroyed. Jesus is talking about the, the, the temple that was standing right before his eyes. And if you look at 2434, just so you can see, he brackets the entirety with this time frame reference. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Brethren, everything that's indicated here in Matthew 24 up to that point took place in that generation. And it's talking about the curses of the covenant, vis-a-vis -vis Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, coming upon these wretches who were pleaded with by prophets, who had the Lord of glory come to them. In fact, look at 21. Look at 21, specifically verses 33 and following. We won't read the whole thing, but it's the parable of the wicked vine dressers. This isn't new in redemptive religion. Isaiah does the same thing in Isaiah chapter 5. The vineyard is God's people. 
And here specifically, the vineyard has uh, uh, been abused. And so the vineyard owner sends his servants to, to plead with the, the guy. And the guy rejects them and resists them. And the vineyard owner says, well, I know, I'll send my son. Certainly they'll respect him. No, they didn't respect him. They crucified him. And then on the heels of that, verse 43 is, is important. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. That's covenantal transformation. Old covenant Israel, new covenant Israel. Old covenant people, new covenant people. There is continuity. We are the true Israel of God, but there is this radical transformation. It's not ethnic Jews. It is Jews and Gentiles, whoever, by God's grace, believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. The, 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 the kingdom is given to a nation. What does Peter say the church is? It's a, it's a holy nation. It's language that was used of Old Covenant Israel applied to New Covenant Israel. So you've got to understand that what Jesus is doing in Matthew 24 isn't telling us about what's going to happen in our future. He is telling his contemporaries what's going to happen to the Jews as a result of them having filled up the measure of their guilt. That's what he says. And then turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Specifically at verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. You've probably heard me mention a few times, going through Acts whenever we have, that one of the, 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 the first primary enemy of the church wasn't the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire certainly didn't love the church, the Roman Empire would turn its antipathy against the church, but initially the Roman Empire just thought the church was just the subset of the Jews. The primary enemy of the believing church of Jesus Christ was unbelieving Jews, and that's what Paul says. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. Those are the Jews that didn't believe the gospel. Notice 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. What do you think he means? He means the Olivet Discourse. He means Jesus prophesied about this. Jesus told us that this is coming. And then one other passage by the Apostle Paul, and there's a lot more we could look at, but we'll just confine ourselves to, to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Notice specifically, we've got this, you know, chapter 7, chapter 8 thing going on, surety of a better covenant, uh, better covenant, better promises, better hope. And then he appeals to Jeremiah 31 to show the glory and the superiority of the new covenant as prophesied by an old covenant prophet. And then after having quoted Jeremiah 31 in verses 7 to 12, notice what he says in verse 13. In that he says a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, if I could just give an amplified reading of this, I think what he means is this. In that he says, a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. 
at the cross through the blood of Jesus. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old, the Jewish economy with its sacrificial system, is ready to vanish away at the destruction of the temple. That's what he means in Hebrews 8.13. Gill says, the apostle argues from the first covenant, being old to its being near to dissolution or a disappearance. And the dissolution or disappearance of this covenant was gradual. It began when the Chaldeans seized the land of Canaan and the ark an eminent type of Christ being wanting in the second temple gave a hint of its waxing old. And both the civil and ecclesiastical government of the Jews were in great confusion under the second temple, at least towards the close of it. And even before the times of Christ, John the Baptist came and proclaimed the near approach of the Messiah and his kingdom. This covenant was of right abolished at the time of Christ's death. Upon his ascension, the spirit was given and the gospel published among all nations, by which it more and more disappeared. And in fact, it quite vanished away when the city and temple of Jerusalem were destroyed, which was in a little time after the writing of this epistle, so that the apostle with great propriety says, it is ready to vanish away. So you see, what we find in Leviticus 26 comes to pass. It came to pass in 722 BC, it came to pass in 586 BC, and it came to pass one last time in AD 70. The old is gone, the new is in play, and because of Jesus Christ, our great covenant head and law keeper, we are not going to be cut off. We are not going to suffer that deprivation. We are not going to be those who are described there in Leviticus chapter 26. And interestingly, we think of the blessings that are given to us as a result of the Lord Jesus. We need to think about those curses of the covenant. Jesus stood for us. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Galatians 3, 17. The apostle says, I'm sorry, 3, 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We not only derive the benefits and the blessings and the promises associated with covenant goodness, but Jesus took for us the curses and the penalties and the sanctions that were due us for our violation of God's holy law. We have everything in the new covenant. We have blessing in the new covenant. We have the removal of cursing. That doesn't mean there's not going to be trials. Doesn't mean there's not going to be heartaches. Doesn't mean there's not going to be, you know, some degree of, uh, of wanting in this present evil age. But it's not curses for covenant disobedience. It's the afflictions, it's the refining fire, it's the following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus who learned obedience through suffering. Those are the kinds of things that the people of God face nowadays, not exclusion, exile, cutting off from the very face of God Most High. Because of Christ, we have everything. All the promises of God are yea and amen in him. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you tell us in Leviticus 26, what you show us in 2 Kings 17 and 24, and what we find in Matthew 24 as well. We pray that you would help us to continually appreciate and, and express that gratitude and love and worship and adoration to our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, that surety of a better covenant. We ask that you would go with us now, watch over all the brothers and the sisters in our local church, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.